Even communion is a celebration of the Reformation. I don't want to lose track of the theme we're on today. You do realize that by the early 1500s, believers did not take communion. The priests took communion in their stead. They were allowed not to take the body for fear of uh, someone not being holy enough taking the body and it being defiled and then being cursed. Luther, one of the first things he did was bring the communion table back to the church. He displayed the elements and he opened the table to all who believed. And so we today got to celebrate a tradition which stretches back to the first century, to the beginnings of the church, and even further than that, to the Passover of the Hebrew people. Because God sovereignly placed a man in history named Martin Luther, who was willing to stand against all odds, against all powers, against all principalities, on the authority of God's Word and say, I've taken my stand, I can do no other. Now, that's an exciting thing for me. And as I think about our church and as I think about our history together, it calls to mind the fact that there are few events marked by the history of the world, not just by the church, but by the history of the world as turning points in history. And yet the Reformation is credited by secular historians, not for its work, which it did for the church, but the Reformation is credited with launching Western civilization as we know it today. This is no small event. This is no blip on the screen. This is an event which is rightly celebrated because it sent ripples through eternity. And it's still, if you think of a pebble in a pond, it's still... It's as if God took the pebble of Luther and threw him in the lake and out from him have extended waves through time that are still extending on every continent, in every language known. What a beautiful picture of the sovereignty and the grace and the mercy of our God. The Protestant Reformation can be credited with rescuing God's church from the dark age of a corrupt Roman Catholic system which was sending many, many people to hell. Not only was the church reformed, but the Reformation brought about the reformation of Western civilization as we know it. We can say with great confidence that without the work of God in and through the life of Martin Luther, the true gospel would have continued to be hidden in the corruption of religion. It would have continued to suffer in obscurity. Few men like Huss and Wycliffe with the courage and the bravery to stand against all odds and face the torch for their faith. I want to take time this morning to remind you of this man named Luther and what God did to revolutionize the church and culture of his day and our day. And we don't talk about men a lot here at Grace Grace Fellowship. You're not going to come into a church service probably the rest of this year where we talk this much about one human man. And that may be offensive to some of you. And for that, I apologize without apologizing for what I'm about to do. I apologize 
Because the fact that someone would be offended that on Reformation Sunday, the history of the church would be repeated to the saints. I apologize not because I'm about to do it, but because the church has not done it faithfully through the years. And because there are many people my age, even older, wouldn't know who Martin Luther was if they were given a multiple choice test. I have to confess, I grew up in church, a Protestant church, though we didn't call ourselves Protestant. And for that, I'm sorry. And I went to a Christian school and outside of history class and one Bible class, I don't know that I ever heard of Martin Luther. And yet I got to freshman year of college and in American history, we had a professor who took the beginning of the class to tirade against Christianity and spent most of the time talking about that hog in the woods, Martin Luther. <laughs> and nobody in class besides me and maybe one other guy even knew who he was. Matter of fact, one guy raised his hand and said, I thought he led the civil rights movement. So I don't apologize because we're going to look at history. I apologize because the church has robbed you of your history and robbed you of this part of your life for so long. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. I'm not very good at German, so if I mispronounce it, I'm sorry. It's southern German. <laughs> he was poor. He was abused. He was neglected. His father was the owner of several mines in the province that he lived, and his father was set on the fact that Martin would be a lawyer and that he would make money. And that he would spend his life in this, uh, in this type of pursuit. You could say that Martin Luther's early life was generally discouraged. He often would talk later in his life about being beaten to the point of blood. And after his dad would draw blood, he would go to school and he wasn't a very good student. So if you're a child here and you're not a real good student yet, you know, keep striving for it. Luther was a terrible student as a young man, and uh, he would have probably been stuck in special education in our day. But, uh, but he continued to go to school, and he was even beaten by his schoolmasters through his time in school to the point of blood. It was a harsh existence in a poor town and a poor family. Luther, in, uh, at the age of 22 in July 1505, on a trip in the middle of the open, was caught in a thunderstorm, and it scared him to death, almost. He fell on his face, and he said, St. Anne, patron, who was the patron saint of all miners, St. Anne, if you rescue me, I will give my life to God and the church. St. Anne did not rescue him, but God did, and thank God he did. Luther quickly joined an Augustinian uh, cohort of monks, at Erfurt, and he had several reasons for this, not the least of which was the storm and the promise he made in the storm, but also because he struggled with his own salvation. Luther had been uh, brought into the fellowship of the Catholic Church. He had been baptized as an infant. He took communion. He had been catechized, but he still wrestled with whether he was truly a believer, whether he was saved or if he wasn't. And so he thought, 
joining the monastery would be a good way to find out if I'm a Christian or not. A lot of Protestant pastors still follow this method. They join the ministry to find out if they're Christians or not. And I'm not throwing stones at them. I thank God that they did, and they're so hungry to know that they joined the church. Many have been saved preaching messages. I, I remember one guy uh, in, in church history who was saved in his own altar call. <laughs> he gave an altar call, and he was the first to come. And so this seems to be a Protestant tradition for good or bad. If you have doubts about your salvation, maybe join the ministry. Luther did in 1505. And, and he continued to think about God. His thoughts of God were only of God the judge. The only frame of reference he had for God the Father was not Father but judge. And it's because of his Father. Now, I want to stop in this history and tell you, fathers, and remind myself. Our little ones will think about God often the way they think about us. If there is no grace in our homes, they will not know a God of grace. If there is no mercy in our home, they will not know a God of mercy. If there is no justice in our home, they will not know God as just. Fathers, would you commit with me in your hearts today to say, my child will get a better picture of who God is because I will walk with Christ and display his character. Luther had no frame of reference except the harsh, abusive father. And so he was obsessed with his sin. Luther journaled about his sin. He would journal about his actions in sin, his lack of action in sin, his thoughts, his lack of thoughts. And then he came to the point to realize sin's not about what I do or don't do, what I think and don't think. It's who I am. And that drove him into deeper depression because he realized there's nothing I can do. I can't free myself from this plague, this sin. He spent hours and hours listing individual sins which he had committed and begging God to forgive him. He beat himself often, starved himself constantly, hoping to find some measure of relief from this guilt that had been placed on him and on his heart. He went to confession, and often he would leave confession. And just as he stepped out of the confession booth, he would remember one sin he forgot and go back in. His confessor said, if Luther is not freed from this obsession with sin, I will get nothing done. (laughs) Because Luther always wanted to confess. He was obsessed with his own sin. He began to understand that sin was not just an action, but it was a being. It was him. Luther's spiritual advisor offered him a way out. And that way out was something known as mysticism. And you may not be very familiar with that. But let's just say mysticism is the belief that, that all we need to do is love God. We just need to love God. That's it. And we need, to, we need to have good thoughts about God. We need to spend our time praying to God. But we don't need to be so focused on sin and on, on evil and on our lack of conformity to Christ. And we don't need to be so focused on the Scripture. Let's just live in this state of loving God. Well, this gave Luther some relief, as you can imagine, from his plagued conscience For a short time. But then he began to think, if God was like his father and his teachers, how could he love God? As a matter of fact, after a short time, Luther 
confessed in his journal, I hate God. Luther's confessors boldly offered him teaching positions, which he gave into, and he began to teach at the University of Wittenberg. And he was teaching theology. He had a doctorate of theology. He gained that in 1512. In 1513, he started his first series of lectures at Wittenberg, which was on the Psalms. He had memorized almost the entire Psalms because he prayed often, and that was the way you prayed. And he had memorized them front to back, and he set his pen to the task of writing down lectures and giving lectures. They carried him through two years of teaching at his position, and then he picked up the great letter of Romans. In 1515, he began to study for his lectures on Romans. His spiritual breakthrough came reading Romans 1.17. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that passage with me. It's a topical message. I'm an expositor, and uh, so this is out of the norm again, but this is an abnormal day here at Grace Fellowship. Romans 1, verse 17, I like to hear pages turning. Yet another reason we can thank God for Martin Luther. You have a copy of God's Word in your language because this man believed a man armed with the Scripture was more powerful than any pope or any church council or all of the above who don't have it. So you have the Bible (laughs) because of the Reformation. Romans 1, verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther really struggled night and day for weeks over this verse because... When he heard righteousness of God, he only thought about the judge. Remember, his only concept of God was that I'm not righteous. God is, and I'm under his judgment. So this brought no relief. This was not good news. And it puzzled Luther why it says, for in it, you notice it says it. It refers back up to gospel. Gospel means good news. And Luther began to ask himself, why is this good news? This is the righteousness of God, and I'm not righteous. And through his struggles, night and day, blood, sweat, and tears, Luther came to the conclusion that the phrase, the justice of God or the righteousness of God, does not refer to the punishment of sinners as the church had taught him. It means rather that justice or righteousness which is given to the righteous, is not their own, but God's. In other words, the righteous shall live by faith is not a statement about you coming to a point of righteousness on your own. This is a statement that God gives you His righteousness and declares you righteous. He referred back to Habakkuk 2, which Paul was quoting, and he studied And he came to this conclusion. It's from this scripture that Luther developed the doctrine of justification by faith. Luther's own words about this moment in time for him are as follows. I felt as though I had been born anew and the gates of heaven had been opened. The whole of scripture gained a new meaning. All from that point on the phrase, the the justice Excuse me. And from that point on, the phrase, the justice of God, no longer fill me with hatred, but rather 
became unspeakably sweet by virtue of a great love. We don't know exactly when Luther became a Christian, but I think it was somewhere between the opening and closing of that statement that he realized, I'm a child of God. He's not a judge. He is a good and loving father. After this discovery, Luther gained, uh, continued to labor in his teaching and his, and his uh, studying. He did not start immediately opposing the church on anything. He rather began to slowly convince and disciple the others who were teaching at Wittenberg to the truth of this scripture. And they were slowly all convinced. They all began to profess the same doctrine. Luther wrote for the first time, a response to the church in the 97 Thesis. And before you correct me, the reason we don't know about this is because nobody caught on to it. He wrote a 97-page statement, a 97-statement page, and nailed it to the church door, which was the way to challenge somebody to a debate. And he challenged scholastic theology. He put his challenge in Latin because he didn't want to start a Reformation. He wanted to debate the people inside the church, because his desire was to reform, not revolutionize. He wanted to stay inside the church. That was his desire. Nobody took him up on it. The night He worked and labored in 97 statements, and nobody even paid it any attention. And so, after no response, he sat down and penned, 95 Theses, attacking the practice of the sale of indulgences. Not theology, but practical life. He put it in Latin because, again, he was trying to talk to the church and not the common German citizen. But he got translated into German. One of his compadres sold him out. <laughs> And because of God's great gift through Gutenberg, the printing press, a type was made, and in two weeks, these 95 theses were all over Germany. Luther swallowed hard. <laughs> he didn't want this kind of reformation. He wanted peace. He wanted study. He wanted uninterrupted service to God, and that wasn't what he was about to get. And he knew it in his heart. You say, what is the sale of indulgences? Well, Pope Leo X wanted to finish St. Peter's Basilica, which had been started by Julius II. It still stands in Rome today, and it's finished. And in many ways, that building, the building of that building, finished the Catholic Church. Because Luther attacked the way that they wanted to raise money. Now, you know, raising money in a church is a difficult thing, right? You never know what lines to cross and what lines not to cross as you ask people to give to God. But always understanding they're giving it to you and this church. And that's a difficult balance. We have a box in the back. And uh, we try not to talk a whole lot about money. But the Pope had no shame in this matter. He wanted to build a building. A beautiful building. And so he commissioned a Dominican friar, a Dominican monk named Tetzel. 
Tetzel was unscrupulous, and he wanted to fleece the German citizens. He wanted to take their money. He made these kinds of statements. See if this doesn't sound like some of the charlatans in our day. This indulgence will make the sinner cleaner than when coming out of baptism. This indulgence will make the sinner cleaner than Adam was before the fall. He traveled around Germany making statements like this. And to be honest with you, Luther was angry because he saw these poor peasants giving their life's savings to the church for a building, no less. All in hopes that they would be saved. See, the dirty little secret about indulgences is, is that they told people, if you give this, you'll be made clean and you will go to heaven. Just give us your money. Who in here wouldn't give everything they had if that was the guarantee? We all might. Remember, they had no Bible. They only had the word of the priest. And no one was standing against selling indulgences because all of them were serving the Pope. He didn't stop there. He said, the cross of the seller of indulgences has as much power as the cross of Christ. As soon as the coin in the coffer doth ring, a soul from purgatory does spring. In other words, if you've got dead relatives or dead friends and they're in purgatory and you're afraid about their eternal life, give us some money. They didn't even mail a hanky to these people. It not only angered Luther, it angered the humanist. It also angered the nationalist who were afraid Rome was gaining more power over Germany than they wanted. And so they all united behind Luther. Luther became their whipping boy. Go get them. Cowards. All of them cowards. They had swords and armies and knights. Luther had a Bible. Sometimes we need to remember a Bible's enough. Sometimes we need to remember what God says in His Word when He says, Don't trust in chariots, nor horsemen. No bow. God fights. We need to remember the words of Abigail to David when she said, Don't kill Nabal in revenge. Because God will have vengeance, David, and you won't be guilty of blood. And David heeded that warning and obeyed God's word when God said, vengeance is mine. And Nabal died because of his opposition to God and God's ministry of the gospel through David's life. Nabal died. And Luther's opponents are not well known to you because they all died. And they are silenced. And yet Luther, as history says, called 
Hus called the swan. Luther is a swan that is not silent. He still preaches today because he believed in God's word and not the power of mankind. Well, you put up 95 theses, you nail them to a door, and you challenge the world, the church to a debate, the few theologians in your town, and you get the whole world. <laughs> Two weeks later, these uh, statements having spread all over, the church refused to sit silent. Because it said things like this. This is the 82nd thesis. I'm summarizing. The Pope... If he can set one soul free from purgatory, should do it out of love, and he ought to do it freely. The 51st thesis goes further than the 82nd. He says, if the Pope has the ability to set one soul free, rather than take the poor man's money, he should give all his money to the poor. And sell St. Peter's Basilica to feed the hungry. That's stepping on toes. That's challenging to a fight. Luther was a rough talker. He didn't have a lot of etiquette. Children, he used swear words. You don't need to read his uh, journals until you're old enough. He was rough. He was rough. And yet that's a testimony to you and I, not to be rough. But if you're rough and yet regenerate, God can use you. Luther wasn't free of sin. Luther was a sinner. Luther was known for his rough and blatant mockery of those who opposed him. In public, he was a sinner. He wasn't right on every subject, and yet God used him. And some of us need to get over ourselves enough to say, I know I'm a sinner, and God can use me. God is God, and I am not. If he chooses to use a sinner like me, to God be the glory. Well, October the 31st, 1517, stands at the pivotal point in the reformation of the church. Huss and Wycliffe and others had tried to change the church But God ordained that Luther have this work. Luther gained the support of all the Augustinian order. And they summoned him. He was summoned to the Diet of Augsburg, which is just a collection of leaders within the empire. And they all wanted to question him. He stood before the representative of the Pope to answer questions. And the meeting went sour, as you can imagine. When you put a rough-talking, rebellious monk in a room... With the, with the church's men, it doesn't go well all the time. He didn't know when to be quiet. And so he left under the cover of dark because he had gotten wind that they were going to arrest him and take him to Rome. He left, and he fell under the protection of Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And Frederick had ulterior motives, and we won't get into those, but just thank the Lord that he, for whatever motive, did what he did. Maximilian died, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time, and Charles I and Francis I of France, Charles I of Spain, were battling over the emperorship. And the Pope inserted himself and drew a truce with Luther and all of his men. 
because they wanted to repeal the attack of the Turks, the Muslims, and they were also trying to get themselves a leader. And they didn't have time to fight with Luther. So Leo X had a temporary peace with Luther and then John Eck, a fellow professor at another institution in Germany, challenged Luther, but not Luther. He challenged the weakest guy on Luther's staff of theology to a debate. And this guy was the least learned of them all. And then he published his questions, and they were all about Luther's theology. Luther got them. Being the bulldog he was, he wasn't about to send a lamb into lion's dens. So Luther showed up. <laughs> At Leipzig, Luther and Egg, uh, Eck faced off for several days. Luther was a master of the Scripture, and Eck quickly found he couldn't debate with him on the Scripture, and so he moved to church history and medieval theology, which he was more comfortable with, and he knew Luther didn't spend all his days studying these things. Eck got to, to the debate exactly where he wanted it. And so Luther, in frustration, said, the council of Constance was in error. He just said it bluntly. That's a heretical statement. You can't say the Pope doesn't know what he's talking about and live to tell about it. Luther said in this statement, one Christian armed with the Scripture hath more power than all the church, the popes, and the councils together without such support. And he continued... to rail against the Council of Constance. And Eck proclaimed him an heir of heresy. He charged him with being a Hussite, which was a way of saying you're going to the stake and you're going to burn. But Luther that day became the champion of biblical faith throughout the Roman Empire. Do you remember in Acts when the apostles stood before the council, the Sanhedrin? Do you remember what they said? Be careful how you treat these men. If they are wrong, this error will die out on its own. But if they're right and you kill them and you persecute them, it'll only spread. That's exactly what happened for Luther. If the church had ignored him, Maybe it's not as big a deal in history, but the church took up the fight. And because he was right, he stood through the persecution. And his followers stood. And the Reformation was spreading and gaining ground. And so Charles I became the emperor and now known as Charles V. And Leo X didn't have any reason to play politics anymore with Luther because Charles was now the emperor and he issued a papal bull. Exerge Domine. The Pope declared Luther a heretic and demanded that his books be burned. He gave him 60 days to submit to the Pope in Rome or face the consequences. Luther was in Wittenberg and they brought him the papal bull. He read it. And with a solemn face, 
a walk to the town square. Many people in town thought he was going to submit. He's had enough. It's too much for one man to bear. But Luther grabbed a brand from the fire and burned the papal bull and the writings of the church. As we say in the South, them there are fighting words. So they called him back before all the leaders of the empire at the Diet of Worms. In 1521, he got safe passage to the debate, to the talk, and he arrived in April. Luther walked into a room full of nobles, and as he passed a celebrated military general who had fought many bloody battles, listen to what this general said to him. Poor monk, poor monk, thou art now going to make a nobler stand than I or any other captains have ever made in the bloodiest of battles. But if thy cause is just, and thou art sure of it, go forward in God's name and fear nothing. God will not forsake thee. And so Luther went encouraged before Eck and all who would accuse him of heresy. Eck just got right down to it. He just didn't want to debate any of these things. Every time they opened the floor for debate, Luther got more followers. So they just wanted a quick answer. They laid out his works on a table. Which, by the way, amazed everybody in the room, emperor included. The emperor actually turned to his aide and said, This young man wrote all this? To which the guy said, I don't know. I can't read German. No, he didn't really say that, but I think he might have. <laughs> Eck asked him if he would refute the words he wrote. Deny them. And with trembling hands, Luther asked for one more day to think, to deliberate over the most difficult decision of his life. He went and spent a night in fitful thoughts of the stake. Luther expected to be burned. He knew what he was doing. He returned the next morning, and to everyone's amazement, he was full of vigor. A supernatural strength, Luther described it, not my own, had filled my heart. I was ready for the task, he said. Dr. Eck demanded that he recant. Enough foolishness. Just recant your books. And Luther gave this long and careful response. I'm not going to read it. We're short on time. But Luther divided his books into three categories. The first category were books that he wrote dealing with faith and life in an evangelical way. And even your own priests agree with me and the Pope on many of these things. If I deny that, then I'll be denying the word of the Pope. I can't deny those. I like it when a man, he should have been a lawyer. He turned it on him. Second category are books speaking against the Pope, the religion of the Pope, and doctrines of men. And here they had him. Luther knew it, but he wouldn't cave. He said, if I denounce these books, 
the Pope will gain strength and continue to rob the peasantry. So I can't deny it. And the third category are books which spoke against individuals and individual councils in specifics. And again, he said, if I do this, the church will suffer. I can't deny it. And this is how he closed his comments. What more shall I say? Since I am a man and not God, I cannot support my pamphlets through any other means than that which the Lord Jesus employed when he was questioned before Ananias and asked concerning his teaching and smitten on his cheek by a servant. He said to them, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of it. If the Lord who knew that he could not err did not refuse to hear testimony against his doctrine, even from the most miserable servant, how much more should I, the scum of the earth, and prone to error, hope and expect that someone should testify against my doctrine? Therefore I pray by the grace of God that you imperial majesty and lordships and everyone high or low should give such testimony, convict me of error, and convince me with evangelical and prophetic writings. Should I thus be persuaded, I am most ready and willing to revoke all errors and be the first to throw my books into the fire. Egg didn't like the long-winded Luther. So he was afraid there might be confusion. I don't know why. When you read the speech, you know what he's saying. He demands a straightforward and concise answer. Dr. Luther, do you recant? To which Luther said, since your imperial majesty and lordship demand a simple answer, I will do so without horns or teeth as follows. Unless I am convicted by the testimony of scripture or by evident reason, for I trust neither in popes nor in councils alone, since it is obvious that they have not often erred. And contradicted themselves, I am. I am convicted by the scripture which I have mentioned. And my conscience is captive by the word of God. Therefore I cannot and will not recant. Since it is difficult, unprofitable and dangerous indeed to do anything against one's conscience. God help me. Amen. And then he left the hall to a chorus of shouts. From the people gathered, saying, Here I stand. He left, knowing he would die. And yet God spared his life. Frederick the Wise took him to a castle, hid him away in a little known place for several months. And in those times, he translated the Bible into German. He wrote his most famous of hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he suffered for some of the worst physical ailments known to men. Not to be grotesque, just to show you that doing theology is not sitting in the white ivory tower. He journaled consistently about hemorrhoid problems. He said he had them so severe that he would bleed for days. And yet he was translating the Bible. He suffered from gout. 
Everybody says the worst thing I've ever seen. His hemorrhoids were so inflamed, he even made jest that they were like a cushion on a seat when he sacked. It always reminds me when I wake up in a comfortable, warm house on a cold morning. That just because it's 4.30 and I'm a little bit tired, I can go take a hot shower or cold, whatever is appropriate. Go to a safe, warm, comfortable study and study the blessed Word of God. If Luther can study through gout, hemorrhoids, and all of his other ailments, I can study with a pot of coffee, heat and cooling, and an office with no fear for my life. On April 16th, excuse me, October the 31st, 1517, All Saints' Eve, Luther fired the shot heard round the world. And on April the 16th, 1521, Luther boldly began the Protestant church with his statement at the Diet of Worms, and he sank the false religion of Catholicism. It still exists in some corners, but he sank it. He fired the fatal shot that freed the church and gave us the opportunity we have today to worship, to read, to study. And so you say, why are you a Protestant? Let me quickly say this so that no one might question what I've been talking about. I am a Protestant because I hold to the doctrine of Scripture alone. Second Timothy 3.16 is one statement of many in the Scripture which teaches this point. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I am a Protestant because we believe that verse, and we believe and teach clearly that this is the Word of God, and there is no other. Notice that the statement is not only, it's alone. Don't ever make the mistake that so many in our day are making calling these only statements. It's that kind of frivolous separation that the Protestants have suffered from. Listen, we believe in Scripture alone. In other words, this Scripture, as given to us by God, carried down through the ages, is God's authoritative, life-giving, passionate Word. There's no other revelation coming from Him in written form. This is it. But we do not cut ourselves away from the history of the church. So many Protestants, and maybe you are guilty of this, I have been in the past, want to forget tradition and forget history and forget the church of the past. Can I just tell you, that is arrogance. For me to say I don't need men who've come before me is the height of arrogance. We are a confessional people. 
In other words, we don't just lightly take the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We believe it's the best representation in man's words of what God's word says. And so we stay in the stream of Christianity that has come to us from the first century. Scripture alone means this is my final authority. It does not mean I deny everything every man's ever said and learn it all again for myself. That, my friends, leads to heresy. If you want to be a heretic, the surest way to get there is to cut yourself off from the church and from the history of the church. Get in a corner with a Bible and begin to interpret it for yourself without any check or balance. You might find you move into a compound with a few hundred people. You might find your name on the FBI most wanted list if this is your tactic. That's how they got there. Because they denied the truth of God's church passed down. This is the final authority. It doesn't stand only. It stands alone. In other words, church, history, and tradition comes just underneath. There's a layer of protection for me. I go to the scripture, then I go to the history, and then I see, do I match what I, what my forefathers said? If not, if, if all of them agree on something and I disagree, I'm probably wrong. And yet in today's Protestant church, in the evangelical branch, which we are a part of, unfortunately so many people think novel ideas are creativity and they sell them. They sell them for other people to follow. Scripture. I'm a, I'm a Protestant because Protestants are the one people on the face of the earth who truly believe that God's Word is the final authority. And this church has given that pattern. We have changed our own doctrinal positions in some ways through time together as we've studied further the Scriptures. Any doctrine of this church can be challenged. You can challenge it. You don't need to be an elder or a deacon or a teacher. If something we've said or written is different than what you find in the Scripture, please, by all means, come to us and show us so that we might be corrected. I'm a Protestant because I hold to the doctrine of Christ alone. I hold to the doctrine of Christ alone. 2 Corinthians 5 17. We could go to many scriptures, but I just want to go to the one we read together. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, underline that, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, underline that, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not through Christ and anything else, but only through Christ. Christ alone is the source of our salvation. So much so that it says in verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. If you are not in Christ, may I just humbly say, you are not a believer and you are headed for hell. There's no other way to teach it than that. And if any church claims to be Protestant and denies that, they are not Protestant. I don't care who they are. 
And there are some famous ones in our day who are now questioning this doctrine. They're saying, well, Jesus is our way, but there's other ways. When you say that, you are not Protestant. Worse than that, you're not Christian. You're not Christian. There's no other way but Christ alone. And we know that through Scripture alone. I'm a Protestant because I hold to the doctrine of faith alone. We read Romans 3 this morning. We won't read the whole passage again. But may I just say, this was the crucial moment of Luther's life, Romans 1.17, when he realized the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And if you notice, look what it says in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by what? By faith. Scripture says by faith. And Luther wrote alone in the margin of his Bible. This is where he wrote faith alone. Sola fide. There's no other way. So what is this? What separates us from other churches? What separates me from other pastors? One point is that I do not believe you do anything for your salvation. You don't do anything for your salvation. If someone teaches you that you must act, do one thing in way of saving yourself, They have left the Christian faith. That's strong, but it's true. Listen, you don't walk down an aisle. You don't sign a card. You don't even repeat a prayer to be saved. You are saved. You are justified. You are made righteous before God because He declares it so. That's why I'm a Protestant. Because I refuse to have my works held up next to Christ as if I did one thing to help myself into heaven. I refuse that. It'd be like sticking a sticky note on the Constitution and saying I was a writer of the Constitution. It'd be worse than that. But that's the way I think about it. People that say they do something for their salvation would be like me going to the archives, taking out a yellow sticky and putting it on the Constitution saying, I was one of the authors. Now, we got some newfangled judges that want to do that in our day. But that doesn't fly in politics. It doesn't fly in government. And it sure doesn't fly in the church. You cannot add to what Christ has completed. It is finished, he said from the cross. And so you say, why be a Protestant? Just be a Christian. I am a Christian. And yet I want to make sure you know I believe the Bible to be the last and final authority on everything for life and practice. And I believe that Christ is the only way into the presence of the Father. And the only way you're in Christ is by faith in Him alone. And you're about to say, I I agree. That's a work. That's what Romans 4 is all about. Because I'm a Protestant. Because I believe in grace alone. 
Notice in verse 24, Romans 3, verse 24, the Bible says through the pen of Paul, it was a gift of God. Justification was a gift of God? How can it be? Ephesians 2 gives us a peek into it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself lest you boast. Listen, if I did a half of a percent, I would tell everybody about it. And so would you. So I'm a Protestant because I believe salvation is a gift of God. And it is by grace alone that we are saved. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We were all children of wrath, but God who is great in mercy poured out His love on us through Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourself unless you would boast. It's a gift of God, the Bible says. So, let me get this right. I'm saved. The Bible tells me, and it's my final authority, that I'm saved through Christ alone. By faith alone. But faith is a work. Romans 4. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. Before you were saved, you had no faith. As a lost, unregenerate person, you could not produce faith. You couldn't do it. You heard messages about the gospel and you rejected them, not because you're bad, not because you're different than this Christian. We're all sinners, but because your heart was unchanged. The gift of God is faith. That's the first gift He gives to the regenerate heart. And so you're a dead man, the Bible says in Ephesians. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, in the casket. And he raises you up with Christ Jesus. And the first thing you do is believe. It's your first breath. If you've ever seen a child born, faith is the breath of the baby coming from the mother's birth canal. When it bursts through it, it it takes that gas. That's faith. And so therefore, it can't be from me. Who's it from? The Holy Spirit. When God regenerates your heart, He gives you faith. Therefore, faith's not a work. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift. And finally, I am a Protestant because I firmly believe that everything is for God's glory alone. We've already gotten a lot of questions about our sign. And you might say, well, I didn't just write for God's glory alone on there. That'd been good. We don't know what it says because I want people to ask. I think every worker on this project says, what does uh, soli, dio, what does that say? For God's glory alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all for what? The glory of God. And you say, well, that's kind of a small verse for a big concept. That's because this concept, like all the Reformation statements, are throughout the Scripture. When someone challenges you, you say, why do you believe in that uh, those sola statements? I can't find them anywhere in the Bible. Say, They're everywhere. That's why you can't find them. 
They're so blatant and obvious, people just look right past them. It's for God's glory alone. It's not for Grace Fellowship. It's not for Carlton. It's not for my family. It's not for these people. It's for God alone. When we feed the poor, it's for God's glory. When we go to mission, it's for God's glory. When we help bring orphans home from foreign lands to be in Christian forever families, it's for God's glory. There's nothing for us here. There's no pride we can take in the work. It's God's. It's God's. This structure is built this way. Think of this mentally. If I was really astute with the computer, you'd have it up there. It's a great outline. It's not mine. I stole it from Jackie Sparks. I think Cheryl did it. Jackie's not really this creative. (laughs) There's a foundation for the church, and it's called Scripture alone. And there are four pillars which hold up the church. Paul calls it the gospel, and we express it as Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, for God's glory alone. And the whole church sits on top of that sure foundation. Why am I a Protestant? Because if you take one part of that foundation out, the whole house crumbles. The whole house crumbles. You don't have salvation. You say, well, I believe all of them except faith alone. Then you're not a Christian. I believe all of them except Scripture alone. You can't be saved. I accept all you've taught us except that thing about God's glory. I don't think that's all it's about. Again, I would say, as hard as it may be to swallow, you cannot be a Christian and oppose these five statements. And that's a hard one to come to. And that may sound harsh. I know in our world of temperance and tolerance, it's hard to say people aren't believers. But we don't have to judge them. We simply hold the word up and these truths give us an outline to look at the foundation of the church and say, is this what you believe? And if not, you must believe. So I thank God in a small way for this church because you've helped me articulate these doctrines better. Because you give me a chance to study. You give me an opportunity to pastor. And I thank God for the men who discipled me, who held these truths. I thank Christ Because he has given us 500 almost years of Reformation faith. And a man named Martin Luther. But more than anything, I thank God that that man did nothing but proclaim the truth of the gospel which Christ himself purchased and brought to us the good news. So on Reformation Sunday, my heart is filled with thanks. Not because of what I've done. I've done nothing. I humbly say, God, for his own glory, has done it all.
Let's pray. Father.